Okay, well, welcome to the No Regrets Podcast with Kate. I'm your host, Kate, and today I'm speaking with Melinda Oshman. I met Melinda a couple years ago in acting class. (laughs) I had taken an acting class because I wanted to get out of my comfort zone, and it was a quick summer eight-week class, and I met Melinda there, and I wanted to talk to her today because she has a really good story. She's in her 60s. I'll let her tell her her age, but she's in her 60s, and she just started acting. And in my book, she's a working actor. She's done small parts in commercials and plays and uh, student films and all kinds of stuff. I'll let you tell, I'll let Melinda tell her story. But we're sitting here this morning on a beautiful Sunday morning, drinking coffee and enjoying a good conversation. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. So welcome, Melinda. Thank you for, thank you you for being on my podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Of course. And thank you for the use of your homes. Nice, cozy uh, room that we have here with a good cup of coffee. So let's get started. So tell me, you started acting a couple years ago, but you had a long career in sales. And just tell me your story. How did you end up where you are right now? Yeah, that that is um, a funny one. Yeah, um, actually, when I started acting school, when I did, I met you in the first class, so that was great. And and you you must have been a natural interviewer because you were the only one that said, "I'm so nervous." Oh my gosh, I was like, <laughs> I I thought the first day that we have to get up in front of people and do stuff, and it, and acting is so not what you think it is, right? Yeah, right. There's and a lot and of I thought I thought good for this girl that she says it. I wouldn't dare say that. Oh, to yeah, me. I I just went there. I went there like, okay, no matter how scary this is, I'm going to learn it, and I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do, and I'm going to try to do it as best as I can, and then I'm going to go act. Right. No, I think Philip was our first instructor, and I think I was going to, like, fall out of my chair. I was sick to my stomach, so nervous. (laughs) And then by the end of the eight weeks, it was like, oh, this is not a problem. Everybody's like, yeah, right, you were scared. Trust me. I'm not any, I was a lot more comfortable, but nowhere near where I should be. I think I prefer, well, actually, I know I prefer to be like behind the camera or behind the scenes versus in front of the camera. Yeah. This is why I love doing podcasts because you can't see me. It's a behind the scenes. (laughs) Well, and that's what I think you did that day. You broke the ice. You were the only one in the class that said, I'm so nervous. And I thought, oh, isn't that sweet that she could just say that. And then everybody else started saying it. And I didn't say it because I'm used to being dogmatic. (laughs) Anyone who knows me knows that, um, especially my husband, you know, um, that, that I plan to do something and I set my sights on it and I just do it. And to me, I'm going to do it and I'm going to be at least as successful at it that I'm somewhat supposed to be. Now that's saying a lot more in acting (laughs) right? because that's super competitive, but it's kind of how I went into sales. And so, you did sales for how long? Like thirty oh God, years. Yeah, that 30 was your years. career. Yeah, it was my career after my first divorce. So I was kind of, you know, in a dark tunnel for <laughs> from about uh, you know nineteen through about uh, twenty seven or something. I I ended up marrying a guy that I dated in high school. Well, we didn't date. We were boyfriend and girlfriend because back then you didn't call it dating really. And then it was a very rocky relationship. And I think I was, um, I, I think I was destined because of some family dysfunction to have a rocky relationship. 
and I had a child, um, which I didn't, I remember not wanting to because I kept thinking, I've got to leave this man. But divorce to me back then was like a, a dirty word, you know, and I got married in 1975. I ended up getting divorced finally in 1980. Through all that time, I kept trying. I was going to school, going to college. I kept switching what I was doing to try to accommodate this this um, dysfunctional marriage I was in. Then I became a, a pregnant and I worked right through, right up to having my child and, and then um, home for several months with him and then right back to work. Um, so it was after I got out of that marriage and now it's like, wow, I'm almost 30. I got to make up for this time. And I had so many college credits anyway I was kind of going out in the nightclub scene and meeting salesmen for some reason, dating, and, and they'd say, wow, you should be in sales. And I finally just looked into it and um, I thought, oh, you can make as much money as your efforts will bring you. Oh, sure. And I mm -hmm. thought, okay, boom, that's it. Now I'm just going to work my ass off and, and make money because I've been, you know, my ex-husband barely worked. He was like a, a pothead and... <laughs> You know, we came out of the 70s, so, you know, he used to grow it and sell things in the house to get it, and <laughs> it was a crazy time. So now um, I just, I think that started my my career in sales and also my um, sense of being a kind of a workaholic. Oh, yeah? How yeah. old are you now? Oh, uh, okay, you're right. We jumped back so quick. No, no, so no, no. I just want to know. I'm 66. 66, okay. And, so. and it's, yeah, and I don't, you know... Um, I guess I officially kind of retired when we moved here about seven years ago. And here is Orange County. Orange, yeah. I live in Orange, Orange of Orange County. County. Orange County, California. Yes. Yeah. And I do a bunch of back behind-the-scenes work for my husband's business, um, my current husband. And we've been married 32 years. Yes. And exciting. we have um, a son, Cameron, 29. I raised my grandson, Dylan, who's now 20 at USC. And then I had an older son. Who passed away and we'll yes talk and I about definitely that i want to talk about that that's yeah. clayton correct? yeah clayton yeah. yes yes so your first clayton time. cameron and dylan yes <laughs> so mark and i met in sales by the way and how long have you been retired well i guess kind of it, i stopped my last sales job about seven years ago oh, okay. okay yeah but i've been doing work for mark and once dylan graduated from from high school 2017 the, he graduated June. I called up the acting school. Did you really? <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> I said, okay, it's my turn. That's so amazing. I just jumped into it really fast. So you did um, sales because you could earn a living and support your family mm -hmm. on your own. Mm -hmm. And then you met Mark. But where did the dream of becoming an actor come from? Oh, so I think I think that was really kind of bred in me through my mother and from my mother. Um, we, as young as I can remember, uh, my mom got me into tap and ballet. 
and she my parents loved show you know we used to even though we didn't have much money we had four kids in the family they would take us to musicals I can remember going to the shrine auditorium as a little kid and sitting at the very top and watching the sound of music and my parents um, both sang and played uh, piano and they used to dance together and that I think that was our family joy because we did have dysfunction in our family but it was kind of like like a you know put under the rug <laughs> and and from right. from the outside we attended church we played music we danced all together and so I love the storytelling to do with and then I watched movies with my mom all the time old black and whites and you know teary stuff and my mom would say uh isn't that a beautiful story? You see what happens, you know. So it just became part of me that I wanted to do it. However, when I got to the age of, of getting ready to get married to my first husband, I was taking dance. I was taking dance in school. I was taking dance out of school. I was thinking of doing something with, with theater. And he kind of talked me out of it. And I allowed myself to be talked out of it. So I look back and say, okay, well, I guess I wasn't ready. Is it a regret? Um, I've said that to people before. Gee, I kind of wish I would have stuck with it. But I, I've, I have a new philosophy which will come out here that that must have been the path I was on. So it probably, knowing what I know about myself back then, I think that maybe I wasn't grounded enough because there's a lot of vulnerability when you go to put yourself out in front oh, of people yes. and audition. And I'm fine with that now. I suspect that I wouldn't have been back then. Putting myself on the line, I, did, I don't think that I had enough roots in the ground to really stay sturdy and positive through that process. So it must have been why I didn't pursue it. Right. But acting is also, it's definitely a lot of vulnerability, but it's putting yourself out there so people can see you. And I know mm -hmm. in my experience, a lot of times I don't want to be seen. Mm. You know, that's something I'm exploring right now. So do you think also that you didn't want to be seen because you didn't know who you were? You were just still exploring who you, who you were or you didn't like who you were? Might have been something like that. I really think, to tell you the truth, back then, looking, you know, going through the evolution of getting to 66, as I look back, I had a poor self-image. But it's kind of like two contrary things. Because I know that I felt like I would look at myself and go, oh my God, I'm so unattractive. I could never see myself on a screen oh no, I don't want anyone to look at me. And that, in that regard, not that I didn't want to be looked at, but I just felt that I was unattractive. The other thing was, I, I think I didn't have enough confidence at, at the time. But then there's this flip side of me that says, it's like my mom used to do. She used to go, I'm putting you in a talent show and I want you to win. And I would be this little kid and go out there and then tap dance away thinking I've got to win. And um, so, and I, I won a poetry contest once when I was in second grade. They announced it and it was like the entire LA school district. Wow. And I won the first prize for second graders. But in my mind, I said, I'm going to win this. And so there's, there's I, I guess I call it two contrary sides of myself. And they were separate back then. 
Sure. Maybe they've melded together, hopefully, by now. <laughs> well, I think I know a little bit about you. Would you say that the competition in you was to prove others wrong? I know now, and we can talk about it, your, you know, your spirituality mm-hmm. and your belief in manifestation or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. You put your mind to something, and then, you know, we can manifest anything, right? But mm-hmm. back then... You weren't in that mindset because you're too young, but was it to prove, you know, prove um, something maybe, to make, maybe make your parents love you more? Was it anything my, like that? Might have been. Well, whatever my, my mom asked me to do, I would do. So that might have been I wanted to please her. So that might have been it. But I also think there was an unconscious competence going on. We all know that terminology when I first heard it. I think there was something because I, I would set my, my sights on let's do this. Yet I was also very withdrawn sometimes, just not having that confidence. So I think by the time that I finally got into, I, I went back to school. I only had to take um, like a year and a half because I had so many college credits. I was always trying to go back and finish something. And I remember talking to one of my teachers. I said, yeah, I'm wondering why I'm going to do this certain class for for um, advertising. And he goes, well, you'd be a natural salesperson. And I said, what? You too? Why? He says, you're very outspoken in class. You're, you're very confident. And I was surprised when he said, you're very confident. Because I didn't, I, I would not have described myself that way. Because I think there's that little girl inside that feels, um, I'm not good enough. I got to make my mom love me. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I really thought I'm, I'm an ugly little girl, you know. And um, it took a long time to get out of that. So I'm always surprised. I've had many people say, oh, you come across real confident. And I'll go, oh, okay. That must be the drive in me. So, and then sales, oh boy, (laughs) I got sucked up in that. And that really was a place for someone like me at the time. Because what they would do is, you know, once I got, I got hired into um, a company at the time, I was shocked. I got, um, I I saw the guy at the college when I was going for my grad check and they were, had um, career day and it was this sales manager and he kind of stopped me and I, I started talking to him and he goes, oh, wow, I want you to come to my office for an interview. And I'm like, why? And he goes, "Uh, we sell copiers. I go, copiers? He goes, yeah. And at the time, this was the early 80s. This is a very competitive industry at the time. You know, if you compete against, if you work for Xerox, you're with the top company. One of my teachers in sales in college said, don't go work for Xerox. Work for the underdog and then see how good of a sales person you can be and so I took that challenge so um, I thought huh and I got hired into a company with all men at the time there were three other saleswomen and I made the fourth in, in about a, you know 120 total people uh, salespeople so what, what I, I'm curious what 
was it like working in a male-dominated office or industry? <laughs> and what lessons came out of that for you? Oh, gosh. I don't think <laughs> I saw... a loaded question? Yeah, I don't think I saw the lessons right away. Um, oh, well, uh, we never do. Yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> exactly. It took a while. I went in with that dogmatic thing again. I just walked in and, okay, I'm going to learn this. And, and of course, I and, and dogmatic is a good way because the guys, that's where I met my current husband. But at the time, I... I didn't know. I got hired into a smaller office of about five guys. They were all very different. This is the days where you wear suits, and the women even wore suits with little dumb bow ties, and you carried up <laughs> nylons. You yeah, oh, nylon pantyhose. <laughs> you got it, and suits. And I had to have all these suits and a briefcase. I actually carried a man's briefcase because that's the way you did it, and I was just very. One, two, three. I'm going to learn exactly the sales pitch. I'm going to learn what it is to do, and I'm going to do it. And I never questioned any of it. Whereas the guys, they were all like fun loving. You know, they were, they were, you know, when the office, when it got five o'clock, they'd all break out the beer. And, you know, I, I, the kind of things I, I tell my son that current program, The Office, that was ours. You know, there's everything politically incorrect. Men talking about women in ways that they shouldn't, and I'm sitting there, you know. And and they would they would tease me and make fun of me, and yet I think they liked me because working with them, I earned my way. I was often the top salesperson in the office. Yet it was it was a hard time. I look back. I had a five year old son when I started, who now I I have this breakup, you know, this divorce, it was very ugly. My ex was by now an alcoholic. He was very nasty. And there was no consideration back in those days. If I said he's treating my son physically, abusing him, no, nobody paid any attention to that. Not at all. So my son was going through a hard time. I was work, work, work come home, rush, 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 let's get homework, let's, you know, take your bath, and, you know, because I was now making up for this, this seven years that I was out in la-la land, you know, in a house where everything was kind of chaotic, and he was selling everything to buy so much pot and everything, so I was trying to make up for that, and, and I was trying to be a good mom, but at the same time, I had all this pressure on me, and I was just, I think through the years, just becoming like a, like a pressure, what do you call it? Like a pressure, um, those kind of pots. Pressure it, cooker? Yeah, pressure cooker. That's it. Just keep building and building. And, and I'd go do the soccer, but it would be, you know, oh, darn it, where's all the soccer clothes? You know, and everything was a rush. My life was like, uh, like I was in the fast lane, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, I just want to ask a quick question before we segue into Clayton. Because I, it's a relevant conversation today. You were in sales. You're always the top salesperson. But you said something. You said, you know, you were one, two, three, a process. Do you feel, and sales is, you make what, as hard as you work, as you said mm -hmm. earlier, right? Right. You, but did you feel like you had to work harder than the men to get more, to get the same as them? Or was it, 
because you were all in sales, it was just equal across the board. It just, yeah, what you sold, right. what you sold, and that's no, that. No, I never felt that way. You're right. I, I felt like I always had to work harder. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it was the, the presence of the man. I think it was... It's just the, the business, the, the sales? No. I th- well, yeah. Well, they look for people like me. People who inside, I guess, you getting, going back to what you said, having to perform, having to bring goodness to myself, having to earn self-respect. That's what it was. It was, I was battling myself all the time. Now you said earlier, you know, as children, oftentimes not everybody feels like we're not good enough. Mm-hmm. So by doing well, you were validating mm-hmm. exactly. your, you were validating your job to say I am enough because look at how successful exactly. I am. Exactly. Thanks. You you did bring that out. That's exactly what was going on. If my name was at the top of the list or in the first five, they always recognized the top five. I would make sure that I would get in that top five. I even had a manager, by the time I left the copier business, I I kind of progressed up, which you do in sales. You keep looking for what's that next thing out there that's going to bring in even greater earnings and more, oh, you win trips. I mean, they dangle these trips. I, I went to Hawaii for the first time. I went to Bahamas. I went to St. Thomas. So I had a sales manager. I went to payroll sales with ADP, the biggest payroll company in the country. Again, 98% men, very few women when I went in. It's not that way now. My, my guess now, it's reversed. But back then, no, it wasn't. Most of these were guys with MBAs, and I didn't have an MBA. I, I started in a sales office again with all men, and they didn't like me being there. I just came in, listened to the meetings, did what I was supposed to do, learned my presentations, and I'd come in at the end of the month with the most sales in the office. And they would get ticked off, boy. And the manager, he was like their compadre, you know. And they would all say dirty jokes. And one guy, one guy was kind of a gentleman. He'd go, guys, come on, Melinda's here. Let's not talk like that. I mean, they were rank. They just said horrible things, you know. One time I had an interview with my manager. He, I, I remember he brought me to tears. And he says, Melinda, you're taking this too personal. So here I was the top performer, but he found something to say about me that ended up bringing me to tears. And he said, you know, you're, you're, you're too um, uh, subjective. Is that when, when you take everything personal? Yeah, subjective, right? Finally, about six months later, when I had my next review... And now I was, I finished the year as, I mean, now we're talking like 500 people in the Southern California region, more in the country. I think I ended up in my, in my group being like number three in the country, winning a trip, winning my, there was a company that golfed. So, because they're all men running it. So, Mark and I would win these trips, you know, that, that uh, there were these wonderful golf courses, Scottsdale, Hilton Head, and Mar- and we'd go golf with the president of the company. So, of course, I had to take golf lessons, you know. And, and I just remember the manager now saying to me, how did you ever think you would succeed in sales? And I was kind of taken aback by the question. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you just kind of came in. You obviously didn't have like a real polished business background. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and then he said, 
but you you stay number one. How how did you ever think to do this? You know, how'd you know you were going to be good at it? I said, I'd never asked myself that. Someone told me you can make good money and I was a single mom and I was tired of being poor. Right. I mean, there were there were times that my parents did not buy clothes for my son. I, I would have had to go to Goodwill. I just wasn't making any money. I was working. At one point, I worked three jobs before while I was married to my ex-husband who would stay home and just smoke pot. So I guess I... Um, I guess that kind of goes back to what I'm saying. I I never really thought about it. I thought, okay, teach me the process, and I'll just go do it. Yeah, I I have found my um my dad had said the same thing about me. You know, he said, you say you do whatever you say you're gonna do, and I think back to that now, and I'm in my 40s, and I f- feel like I have more hangups now <laughs> than I did in my 20s and 30s when it should be the opposite. Because I always thought, well, I could do this. Yeah. I could, you know, I could do this. And everything used to come so easily to me for whatever reason. And now, now I have those. Now I'm like, all this stuff is coming up. I feel like, you know, I'm healing a lot of things, but that I'm not capable. I'm not enough. I'm not, you know. And so it's just amazing how society... And in our environment, will put those projections onto us because yeah. people are insecure. Your manager could have been insecure that a woman, a woman, what is beating him or is doing well. And see, I never thought but, of I it mean, that way either. Too. Yeah, exactly. I, I never thought, thought, oh my it. gosh, I'm not good enough. Right. I'm not. Oh, they're now they're seeing something else wrong with me. Right. Oh my god, <laughs> how do horrible? I fix that? Yeah, yeah, that's and so. Yeah, it's that whole, I, for a long time, it, just everything was, I'm going to do this, and I did it, and I'm going to get this kind of car, and I did it, and it just wasn't <laughs> even a thing, and now it's like, oh my gosh, all this stuff is coming to the surface, and and it's preventing me from moving forward. Well, you know what, I, I guess I have a different take on that, because that's also what I was saying about myself as when I was younger, I was unconsciously competent. The other right. thing That's that good, yeah. the other thing that I may have been unconscious about, and that you're saying you were unconscious about, is the fact that we weren't really aware of life and everything it is to be human, and it is part. You know, I love that that simple saying: "To err is to be human." Sure. And but I never would have subscribed to that when I was young. I would have thought, oh, "What? No." And, and again, what attracted me to being a friend with you was you were the one person in the acting class that when we're all sitting there waiting for the class to start and you say, I'm so nervous. I thought, wow, she could voice that. You know, I wouldn't have thought of voicing that. I would have thought of going, okay, you guys, I'm going to do just as good as all the rest of you, if not better, you know, and, and it brought humanness in. And so I think it's not so terrible to tell you the truth that you doubt yourself, that I doubt myself, that I, I do a scan sometimes, <laughs> because I don't know. Maybe, well, I think I do know, and I don't know. Maybe I'll come right out and say this now: is it took me thirty years of sales, of working there, and and striving to continue to be number one, but having tragedies occur in my personal life that finally taught me that that's not what I came here for. 
Now, if you would ask me when I was 32, 34, 36, when I was in the peak of my sales career and winning trips and on the stage with big trophies being recognized, I would have said, wow, I've arrived. This is what I'm here for. I never believed that 20 years later, I would think that's not at all. That, that was never important. Sure. And, and before, you know, when you were at the peak of your career and at that moment, did you see yourself continuing on that trajectory? Yeah, I did at like that, that time, time. getting yeah. even more. And, and what they wanted to do with me was to stop me and put me into management because they don't want lone wolves out there. In, in a big company like an ADP, they don't want to have one salesperson in the West Coast that's the top earner, the top, you know. At one point, they put off paying me a check because it was so big, a commission check. And Mark finally said, go, go tell them we're going to get an attorney. And I finally said that to the vice president of sales. I said, do I have to get an attorney to get paid on this? And he looked at me and he said, don't ever use those words. In this company. But did I, they pay you? Yeah, they finally did. But I was soon gone after that. Because they don't want that. They want you to go into management. Now the reason I didn't want to go into management. Was now my son's a little older. Um, he's going through hard times. I never understood. I guess I can just say from, a, from how I thought back then. is What is his problem? My son had depression. And not that I haven't had some forms of depression through probably from childhood, but not to the degree that he did. At 14, he was finally diagnosed. Back then, they called it manic depressive. And that's when we, had, we started having events. Like he was so out of control as a teenager, as an early teenager, eighth grade, it started. Well, it was spurred by my mom's passing. He was very close to my mom, and my mom passed from cancer at a young age. At only 61, he spiraled into just, you know, first first a kind of withdrawing, silent, and then I started getting reports at the school. I started getting calls during my sales day. Back then, we had pagers. I was constantly being paged, and he was in trouble. He was acting out. And this was the period that ADP wanted me to go into management. And I know what management is. You're in meetings all through the night. And then you're out riding with reps all day. And your whole income comes is derived from how they perform. So there you are pushing other people. When I didn't want to push other people. I knew what I could do on my own. I had kind of gotten a science to it where I knew how to come in and feel my way through it. Which, of course, they don't like hearing that. They want everything to be calculative. In other words, I had a very strong sense of intuition. Sure. That I was not utilizing in a spiritual sense like I do now. My home was becoming chaotic. I, I married my husband, Mark, in 1987. We had a nine-year-old boy. All of a sudden... Mark didn't know how to be a father. He was younger. He, he walks into a troubled life with a nine-year-old. Then, then I had to have a hysterectomy. That's right. I forgot all about that because he wanted children. 
I, months after, all of a sudden, my body broke down. I had, a, you know, hemorrhaging and a hysterectomy. And then he, Mark was great. He said, that's okay, we'll just adopt. And I thought, oh, my God. And I remember struggling for a year with, how am I going to have a baby? And I would, I would lay awake at night thinking about this. And then finally one day, it, we, we just, we ran into a situation, which I think was all now divine intervention, but I didn't know that back then. Uh, we were trying to buy a car. We ran into a couple and we started talking about their little toddler and they had just adopted. They referred us to their, their attorney. We went there and signed up and they said, oh, you have to make this book you know, this book about your family. And it was all crafty. And I thought, I don't do crafty stuff. I, my, again, I'm driving in the fast lane. I used to eat in my car and feed my son in the car <laughs> on the way to daycare and, and just work, 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 you know. We, we brought this book home and it was kind of ironic because um, Clayton at the time was 11 and he said, I want a little baby brother. I want to write something to these to this birth parents. And he did. He put his picture on a piece of paper and he wrote a letter about what he does and what he wanted. And we turned our book in and the guy said, well, it could be up to 10 years before anyone chooses your book. Wow. And one week later, we got the call. Wow. That we were chosen. And we went and met this... Um, we went to the office and they said, uh, you know, don't be alarmed when you see the, the, the birth parents coming in. And it was this little 15-year-old girl all dressed in gothic. That was the gothic period with military black boots and black fingernail polish and black makeup everywhere and hair spiked and, and kind of a more plain-looking dad who was her boyfriend. And then her mother... Her, who was, we found out, a drug addict. And this was going to be our son, Cameron. Wow. And, of course, that changed dynamics, you know, again. Um, all of a sudden, nine, well, not nine months later, about six months later, we get a call in the middle of the night when I'm getting ready for a big presentation to this big corporation, a military um, uh, manufacturer. When I won't say the name of the company, but... Um, the guy called at midnight, and of course I'm up, well, Mark's sleeping, Clayton's sleeping, and he says, she's in labor now, you've got to come, you're the people, because they hadn't given us our final paperwork. And I was like, I can't come now, I've got a big presentation tomorrow. You know, that's how my mind was, instead of hallelujah, you know. And I went and woke up Mark, and Mark was so excited, he jumped up and packed up the car, packed up Clayton, and we took off to the hospital and and uh that was Cameron was born wow so Cameron and and Clayton were 11 years apart okay and of course I'm in a big now I'm in a what's called a national account manager which they've given me some of the biggest companies in California to work on selling so I hadn't told them that I didn't know what was going to happen all of a sudden I called them up that next morning I said well I've got a baby and they were angry they were very angry at me. I didn't know that I should have called the corporate HR department and asked for time off. They just made me take up my two weeks vacation and then boom, right back to work. Oh so, my goodness. Fast lane for another 15 years after that. Wow. So how was the dynamic? Did um, Clayton's dynamic change or did it get worse? Um, 
As far as having Cameron there, he was such a good brother. In fact, you know, Cameron will look back and say, my brother never once fought with me, had an angry word with me. I mean, Cameron um, just loved his older brother and Clayton loved him. Unfortunately, the dynamic in our home was different because once Clayton started causing a lot of trouble, Mark didn't like that. And now Mark had this little baby boy that he got to raise. Also, I, in all fairness to Mark, it brought out the fathering instinct. You know, Mark was younger than me anyway, by six years. So he didn't know how to father, and especially he didn't know how to parent a, a troubled young boy. You know, he didn't know what to do for him. Everything he tried failed. And so Mark became so involved in Cameron and I, on the other hand, had to make sure that Clayton felt left out of it a lot. So we kind of came divided. And yet we're both in sales. We're both managing these. Sales is high-pressure career. If you're going to stay in it and you're going to make high earnings, you've got to go along with the pressure. You know, so, so life became, even though the two brothers got along, it became even more chaotic. It was a divided family, you know. Sure. Clayton ended up succumbing to addiction. Yes. Correct. Yes. Back in those days, it was marijuana. And, you know, I, I had gone through that in high school. But I got away from it once I became a parent because I, it, it got me to, I mean, here now everybody's smoking again, but back then it was illegal. It's now illegal, yeah. Yeah, back then it was illegal. And, and, you know, I had to stay focused. And especially when I was in sales, I mean, I drank um, alcohol, but I didn't. And what I didn't know was that Clayton was also drinking alcohol. And I didn't, and now his... His his actual depression was, you know, being a manic depressive, which now I guess they call it bipolar, right? I think that manic depression now is renamed bipolar. But he had these highs and these lows, and, and he had been a very intelligent kid in school. But now he wasn't performing at all. He was he was leaving school. I you know I went to my his freshman year conference. They say I'd say, oh, I'm Clayton's mom, and oh well, he might be doing well if he ever came to class. And I said, what? How come no one told me? I'm out working, you know, and not knowing that these kids had figured out, he and his friends, how to cut the right classes where they, it doesn't trigger a call home or something. And he was out drinking and smoking pot. And now I look back on that and think, well, the smoking pot part was pretty mild, but not in Mark's eyes especially. He didn't want that going on in the home with Cameron, you know. Cameron already showed all this this um, love for um, athletics from a young age as kids, and Mark loved sports, so it was a perfect mix. They just became from from t-ball all the way through to you know little league and major league and pony league and the whole thing. Cameron was into every kind of sport, but mostly baseball, and Mark loved all that. So Mark was the coach and the this, and I was out chasing Clayton. Where was he at? What was going on? So what? how did your beliefs or your life change with the death of Clayton? I mean, you're yeah. telling me, you're yeah. telling me now, you know, yeah. work, you know, work yeah, was at I the know. forefront and family and... 
Well, well, what happened in between that was I didn't really know anything about opiates. That was the biggest problem. Clayton never went that route of opiates until this girlfriend that he got when he was in high school, she she came from chaos herself and she we had a nice home a swimming pool parents had had enough money to you know do whatever and she decided I'm going to get pregnant and she did and that kind of threw everything up in the air and Mark said you've got to leave and I'm not going to help you and and Mark would impose those ideas and I just had to go along with them and of course, Clayton was really upset, but he was also this gallant, you know, this is my baby and I'm going to marry her and we're going to have a home. But they had no no way of doing it. He was a waiter there. And what, what I found out was that it, it wasn't right then. She Once she had the baby, they moved out. They got an apartment. I helped him a bit, but Mark really wanted to, hey, no, he's got a, he made his bed, let him lie in it. Those old-fashioned kind of things that Mark and I were, were raised with. We knew we had to go out and make a living for ourselves. Clayton hadn't gone to any college. He was out of high school. He was just working. She took off somewhere else, now with his child. And that was his entree to opiates. He had an apartment with a lease. Some guy, a friend of a friend, moved in. And this guy dealt opiates. He, he sold pills. I had no idea that this was, this was in 2003. And this was the, the start of that whole thing. And I really had no idea. At one point, Clayton came to me and said, I can't afford to do this apartment anymore. Can I move home for a little while? And, you know, in between all this, I should say, we did go to counseling. We, I sent him to a counselor. I went to a counselor. Um, you know, of course, everyone tells you don't be a, um, a codependent. Or, everyone, an, or an enabler. An enabler. Everyone called me that from the get-go. And so I was always trying to pull back. I was always trying to listen to what Mark said. But my heart was always telling me something else. And now my mother was gone because I knew if my mother was around, she would have been saying, um, no, no, we, we need to help him. We need to take care of him, you know. And finally, when Clayton came back, that was when I started to see these signs of addiction. But I didn't understand addiction then. And it was three years. He, Mark, made me kick him out at one point because he, he couldn't keep jobs. I remember one point I asked him, and, and, and he, he went to go live with a friend, and I would drive groceries over there. He went to go finally at the end um, because Mark wouldn't let him come home. He can't come home till he proves he's not taking any drugs. We still didn't understand the whole opiate thing. Can't come home till he, prom- he apologizes to me for, you know, because we found out he had taken some of our personal checks before, not for large amounts, like $40 here, $40 there. And I didn't know he was buying a bottle of pills. So finally, um, I got him to live at a friend's house in her motor home because he had nowhere to live. 
And then he would go get these waiter jobs. And Clayton was a very nice looking person. He looked, he had a very good look to him. So, and he had a sweetness to women. Women always loved him. They would always, you know, say, oh my gosh, I just love your son, you know? And, and it was just this, this, I think he was so used to grandma and mom because he was raised by women, you know? He, um, he couldn't keep a job. And I remember asking him, what is it? Why can't you keep a job? And he said, I'll tell you, but I don't want you to make a comment. And I thought, wow, that's tough. He finally said, I get the job, but I can no longer sleep, Mom. I'm, I'm up all night because I've been taking these pills for too long. So all of a sudden, I'm, I'm up. I have to take a pill to make the withdrawals go away, and I don't know when it's going to pop up. And then I'll be on the job waiting, and then all of a sudden, my body will go into a stupor. And I'll look drugged, and they'll fire me. And I had to take that, and I promised them I wouldn't comment. And uh, so I had all this turmoil in me. I was still working sales. Now it was really starting to affect me because I, there was just no joy in me anymore. I, I saw my son going downhill, his health. Um, he was... See, he had visitation with his son, so I would bring him to my house, and so he could see his son at my house. My husband was mad because he's like, he's on drugs. We didn't really understand the drugs until one day I took one of the names off the pills, and I looked it up. And I never thought of doing this. I I always had to look up so much stuff on the internet back then. The internet was still new, and I, I had to look up companies. That's what I had to do. And one day I typed in hydrocodone, and then a, a chart opened up, and it showed it in the same family as heroin. And I think right then I nearly died. So yeah, it took a long time to get there. No, no, no. <laughs> it's quite okay. Um, I, I was shocked. I was... What did you do then? Well, Clayton's now out um, living at someone's place. You know, he had to move all over the place. I I started looking up places to take him. But Mark said, I don't want you spending money because he just sucks up the money and he doesn't do what, what you want him to do. So one time I confronted him and he told me that he was on a methadone program. I didn't know anything about that. So I said, what? He goes, I am, I am. And he was all upset and he had to go to his waiter job and he was screaming, he was like out of control. I didn't know that's the withdrawals coming on. So I said, what do you mean you're on a methadone program? And he and he had me follow him to this place. And I, I remember walking in and asking if my son goes here and they said, well, we can't tell you that. And I walked out and I see him in his car and he's crying. And I just said, um, I said, Clayton, I don't understand all this, but I, I didn't know it was like this. This is like heroin. And he looked at me and he goes, I don't take heroin. I said, okay, but these pills you're taking are like heroin. And I said, I'm scared for you. And he's just looking at me. And I, looking back, I know that now people, when they're in that mode, they don't know what they're doing from one minute to the next. And I just finally said what I should have been saying. And I said, I love you and I'll do anything to help you. And it was that day he looked at me 
and he had to go home and shower and go to work. And he called me from work on his break and he said, Mom, I need help. I need help right away. You got to help me because I can't stop taking pills. And then when I take them, I lose my job. Oh, because Mark had told him, you have to keep working. We're not going to support you. So I started looking places up. But what I didn't know was it was hardly, the, the really good places cost lots of money. Now, I could have pulled money out, but that was not our arrangement, our agreement at home. So I put him in some place um, local and, and he was willing to go. I, I got him. I said, Clayton, this is um, in our local town, the Upland Rehabilitation Center. So he got on the phone with a woman and he's answering questions. And he says, okay. And he packed a bag and he said, let's go, mom. I have to go right away. I remember driving and they gave us a map and we drove up and it was a house. It was a beat up little house. And Clayton looked at me and he said, Mom, I thought we we're going to a hospital. And I look at the brochure and it's a hospital. And I called them and I said, Hey, we're at a house. Where's the hospital? And they said, Hey, we're a nonprofit. That's the hospitals where the women go. This is where the men go. And everyone in there is court ordered. Your son's the only voluntary guy. So I told him, I'm sorry. So we went in and there's one nurse. There's a bunch of guys in there, and there's a doctor who comes in to visit and prescribes. Once he got through interviewing Clayton, he came out, and I wrote a check. It was, wasn't a lot. It was $1,800, and he said, your son's going to have a very hard time. And I didn't know that what he was talking about was withdrawals. I didn't know that. What ended up happening was the nurse would go at night and lock herself in, in her bedroom, and all the guys there pulled out their hypodermic needles and started shooting up heroin. And Clayton had, I remember his girlfriend told me later, he said, I'll never shoot up heroin. And so he left. He ran away. He took his pills. And, well, three months later, he died. He died again trying to go to work because we told him he had to work. And so he started at a point of taking pills to bring him up, to wake him up and go to work, and pills to... Try to help them to sleep. sleep. What yeah. a vicious cycle is yeah. that? It's a horrible cycle. It's a horrible and, cycle. And of course, I didn't learn about the whole cycle until after, after he died. And I went to his friends. And his friends, I'd always been good to them. I'd always treated them respect. Not all of the friends were on. There were only a couple doing the same thing he did. The rest of them were just pot smokers and drinkers. And I just you know, treated them with respect and little by little from the ones that were taking them, they, they explained the cycle to me. And I, I felt really bad. But a lot of things happened in those years. And I actually went to his closest friend who was also very addicted. And I did what I wish someone would have done to me. I went to his father and I, I told him, I said, your son's really addicted to these opiates. And he was a doctor. And he didn't believe me. But his current wife, when I said what the signs were and what the symptoms and how they fall asleep and all this kind of stuff, and she looked at him and she says, it's true. I've seen it all too. And he ended up dying. Oh, no. Yep. Yep. Even though the father knew and the father tried to do everything to save him. It was that friend who told me how Clayton used to call him and say, dude, let's go to rehab together. But like people say... You can't, people have to be ready, 
But what I say and what I learned is that they need a support system. So through the years, I went to several parents and begged them to help their their child. And and I can say that about four or five guys that I see off and on now, um, and this is now my younger son's friends, they'll say, you know, hey, you saved my life by going to my parents and telling them what happened and, and what I was going through and how important it was to help me that I, I got through it. That's so beautiful. I guess it's 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 um wonderful and I I do it in Clayton's memory sure. in honor of him. <laughs> so the thirteenth year anniversary is coming up. Did you say that? Uh, it's been the, thirteen it's, years since his it, death. It, it's next uh, sun, Saturday, the nineteenth of be October. Years. Yes, yes. So, what happened after his death, and <laughs> and and how you can talk about it? You are dealing with it well, right? And so, right. what what happened after that, and what well, is, and I how did, did this change your life? It it did change my life very much. I and mean, how can it not? Obviously, yeah, right, but right, and it changes everyone's life to lose a child. Um, and then to lose a, a a parent, a lot of time changes people's lives. I sunk, of course. I, I was angry in the beginning, so angry. Mark, of course, was so remorseful. And so he regretted all his actions, of course. And I was at a point where it was like, uh-uh, let me, uh, I just wanted nothing to do with anybody except my grandson, who was seven. And very hard on him, especially since his mom that he was living with and his stepfather, they were also doing the same thing. So now there's this chaos all around. And um, I would say for the next six months, Two things happen, and now I think about it, it's that contrary thing again. The yin and the yang of my earlier life, driven and yet, um, you know, uh, confused or in doubt, is that I, I really had a lot of physical ailments, one right after the other, uh, because I was in so much grief and so much remorse and so much regret. And then at the same time, I started experiencing you know, kind of supernatural things. Such as? Well, the, the the one time I, after Clayton passed, and I was his girlfriend at the time who he wanted to get back with her, he wanted to marry her. Not Dylan's mother, a girlfriend that he had very, he, he, he loved. And he wanted to get married to her. And she was saying, you've got to get off these drugs and we'll get married. So what happened was she wanted to see where he passed. He had passed away in my friend's motorhome. And so I told her it was late at night and I was up all the time. And I told her I would meet her there. And I started driving there. And as I drove, this right in front of my, my rearview mirror, it was, it was like 11 at night, this great big owl flew up, I mean, right into my windshield and just spread its wings and called out to me. An it, owl, you said? An owl, okay. yeah, a great big, I it covered my entire windshield. I, I kind of screamed and then I... I thought, wow, that was weird. And then right after that, I pull into the driveway and I go into the motorhome and she came and we're sitting there. 
And as I'm talking to her, telling her about it, because all his belongings are there, and his truck was right down below, because it's a driveway you have to walk up to, I'm staring out the window, and I see this figure of a man coming up. And tall, thin, that's how Clayton was shaped. But also the man who lives at the house was like that. So I said, oh my God, it's Nick who lives at this house. And and I could see the figure walking towards us to the motorhome. And I opened the door and I said, I'm sorry, we're here right now. But there was nobody there. So that was like my first time. And I realized that the shape of the head and everything, that it was Clayton that I saw. And after that, I started having these appearances of him. A day later, I took my grandson because I was so worried about him. And I took him right above our house, climbing in this little stream and just spending time with him. And as I stood there watching him, out of the corner of my eye, I see this man standing right next to me, dressed the way that Clayton. He wore a lot of white t-shirts a lot, a lot of times and big baggy jeans. And, and then I'd look and he wouldn't be there. So I started having these experiences, and one of my friends said to me, I want you to talk to this medium that I know. And I was kind of questioning, but I've always kind of had a belief that there's more to everything than we, you know, I, I'm not one of those people that say, no, it's impossible. Sure. Yep. There's, and, and I was raised in church, so to me the thought of heaven was more of a religious belief. But um, I... I went ahead and this medium, you you call her or she calls you. I think she calls me. And we started talking and she introduced herself. And you don't say anything about your loved one. Then all of a sudden she brought up, my mother was there. And then she said, your mother's here. And she says, Clayton is with us and he's fine. And I just went, I didn't tell her who passed away. And, you know, a lot of people go, oh, she could have looked it up. Well, I know the woman now. She's so busy. She doesn't <laughs> take time to look up anything. She's also a workaholic. He started to, everything started coming out about the scene the day that I arrived. Who was there? Who found him? She started just repeating all of it. And then she started crying real hard. And I was surprised. I was like, and then she stopped and said, oh my gosh, I hate when they do that. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, he's so sorry. He's so sorry that he took the path that he did, that he ended his life soon. He was meant not to, but that was one of the paths he could have taken. And I was really confused. And everything else she said, she goes, he says, stop folding my clothes to put in boxes and give to my friends, which is what I was doing. She goes, just give them my music because he loved music and he used to design these, these CDs and everything. So then I became very interested in all of this afterlife, which she just says, well, you know, we're souls, we're souls traveling through time. And we choose these lives. And I said, what? We choose these lives. <laughs> like, why I said, would we do that? Yeah, I said, no, I don't choose a life for my son to die. And she right. goes, well, at some point you did, Melinda. And I mean, not everybody believes this. And at first I didn't want to believe it. But my life did change. And, and I started to take spiritual classes and learn about the journey of the soul and and. And at the same time, I also started going to grief counseling because one part of me, I was just in horrible grief. And through all of that, 
I kept experiencing these things, these these animals coming to me and butterflies coming all around me. And and I learned about spirit animals and I learned about just this this whole thing that sometimes it's it's the tragedies in our life that teach us really what we came here for. And I started now to hold on to that belief. And all of a sudden, one day, the doorbell rang in the morning while I was off going to work. And it's my my grandson's mother. And she looked terrible. And she was addicted to drugs. And she just said, here, he wants to be with you. And I thought she was just taking off for a day. And she didn't. She took off for a couple years. And I ended up taking, um, you know, guardianship of him. <laughs> the one thing that changed and changed in Mark and changed in me was I could never have taken off work because I was driven and Mark was driven and Mark was driven for other reasons. He grew up very poor and we all both thought we can never stop working. At the time, I took my grandson and I was driving him to school and, and working at the same time, now raising a little boy again. And one day I went into work and this woman who had taken over at the company, she fired me. And I was the top salesperson there. But it was a little company now. And I started to get angry. And I caught myself. And I thought, this must be what's meant to be. Yep. And I just said, okay. And then I focused on my grandson. And Mark allowed me to. There was no, no more of this drive. And our... <laughs> the crazy thing was our son Cameron, who was now a teenager, was grief-stricken as well. And he went into drugs. Never what we had expected, because he was so into sports. And Mark focused now his life on trying to help Cameron not go through the same fate as brother. I'm focusing my life on trying to keep my grandson going this intelligent little boy. I got him into Boy Scouts, and I got into Boy Scouts. I got involved in school. We went climbing and hiking out in the desert all the time. And through the whole thing, I kept taking classes to learn, what is it I'm doing here? What What are we here for? And it kind of just... You know, I think of Marianne Williamson. I read her books, and now everyone knows her from she's she's talking and you know, running for president, or you know, I don't know if she's still in the game. But you know, I remember reading one of her things. She says people ask themselves, "When am I going to get on my path, the path <laughs> to greatness?" And she says, "And what we don't realize is the whole time we are on that path. There is no wrong decision, correct? Yeah, there's. It, it was just kind of like um." kind of blindness for a while, just, you know, being driven, not realizing that all that stuff that, that um, you know, there was a time where I hated myself for what happened. I hated Mark for what happened. I hated the, the one counselor who told me I was a codependent. And, and I was going to a grief counselor, and he made a, a beautiful line that I never forget. And I said, yeah, I did all this because I was a codependent. And he he said, ah, oh, codependency. He says, there's such a thin line, Melinda, between codependency and unconditional love. Oh. And I really grasped that. And, and I just stared at him a minute. 
He said, Melinda, if Mother Teresa were around today, everyone would call her a codependent. <laughs> <laughs> and and I realized that, okay, it's okay to be who I am. And it's okay that I didn't realize those things, that what Clayton was going through. You know, it was the one time when I told him, I love you, I'll do anything, that he was able to open up and say, I need help. And the help that point in time wasn't the right help. Later on, I saw other people, even what we did for Cameron was the right help. Throwing everything at it, throwing the money at it, throwing the the research into how do you get people off opiates. We still don't know as a country. We still don't know. People, every time someone dies that, that we either we know, we've known several more people who have, and or these actors. Yeah. Well, I don't know the statistics, but it's the number death yeah. of, yeah. It's, yeah. And, and that's what my son perished from, finally, was one Oxycontin. You know? Wow. We yes, we all have our own path, and we will go that route but because of your tragedy because of the tragedy of losing a child now do you see more clearly that work and being the top you know working till our deathbed <laughs> is really not what we're here for no. i mean we have to make a living and i'm sure, not opposed we do. to working exactly. hard do not get me wrong but now would you agree that there's more to life than working our asses off paying bills and dying. Yes, I certainly would. Um, you know, I, I hate to be so, quote something that, that is such a um, common thing, you know, stop and smell the roses. But whatever people have experienced, these people who make statements like that, that yes, that that is what it's about. I started to live life more consciously about loving those around me loving the my family accepting whatever faults accepting my faults that was the hardest thing i think was my own forgiveness of myself forgiving myself and and the other thing i had to decide i remember when the one medium told me you don't know what your son's path was that was probably his path and i got angry at that and after a while of years of, of seeing life and seeing the direction that we're going and the ups and the downs and finding love in this family again, I realize that it's a mystery. And, it, and, and it's okay that it's a mystery. I don't know why my son died and others were saved. I don't understand that. But I understand that I was meant to learn how to just love unconditionally and and the fact that that I will see my son again I believe that I believe we are souls and that and that we're supposed to live life a little more consciously and that we're probably not here to become the best doctor or the best salesperson we're probably here more for something that is more human more whether, intangible, right? Being right. kinder, loving right. more people. Yeah, and everyone's path is a little different, and everyone's purpose is a little different. But it has to do with something that is lasting. Because anything that all the money you make, you can lose it in a minute. I remember one of the counselors said to me, 
You're worried about losing your job? Oh my God, I thought you were coming here all frantic because you were losing your life or your, your, you know, and later on it was, I lost my son. I had to lose my son so that I could learn that, that the most important thing for me was learning unconditional love and how to just give it freely. And, and those are the things that I get on myself about now when one time I'm in a hurry and I go into a, a fast food line and someone's taking a long time and I notice I'm getting impatient because I used to be the most impatient person there was. And then I catch myself and think, oh my gosh, Melinda, that could be you standing there. You know, so what? Give it up. <laughs> Look around, smile, and that now... I can go and do something like do acting. I can pick up someone's story and try to portray it to an audience, whether it's a commercial that I'm doing, whether it's a student film that someone put all their heart and soul into. It may have been 13 years since I've lost my son, but I think of him every day. I know you do. I It's my personal belief and my experience that it's, not only like your son's path, but it's because it's a ripple effect, right? Yes, oh, very much. So it could be all of our paths. He took, he made that choice, and I'm I'm using air quotes when I say choice, Mm -hmm. at some point in his life because it's like he sacrificed himself to bring you and your husband and your families that tragedy led you on a completely different path of mm-hmm. really knowing what life means. Yeah. It's not about sales and it's not about being number one or, you know what I mean? If it, we all lost it tomorrow, if like Mark and I have agreed that if if everything fell apart, the job, the the house burned or whatever, we would be okay because we have each other and we have each other here on earth and we have each other forever after, you know? Right. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and now you want to share your story, your mm-hmm. son's story. And so part of acting is you love storytelling. That's yes. what you said to me. Yes. So you like sharing other people's stories or acting them out to share with the world. And you want to write your own and story. And I'm getting to a point where, yes, I'm, probably going to have to give up some of the going off and auditioning because it all is all time consuming learning scripts I had a lead in a play where I'd like what 80 pages of script to learn so now yes I'm it it is my the prep time for me to share the story and there's some several stories I want to share but my son's is one of them um the struggle that these addicts go through uh, I remember one of the rehabs that my younger son was in, that one of the counselors who was a recovered act- addict said, you know, addicts deserve respect too. And at the time I heard that, I thought, what? Well, it's no, true. it is yes. true. We're mm-hmm. all human. We all experience our own doubts and insecurities in different ways and they manifest in different ways and who am I to look down on someone who's chosen the way to hide their pain through addiction you know I hid mine through addiction to work my husband hides it through addiction to food you know we all have something so yeah everyone deserves respect yep 
So now comes the question, how would you define no regrets? And do you have any regrets? Well, I, to be honest, I'd have to say, sure, I regret that during the time of my son's addiction, when it was in front of me, when I would first pull the rug over it, um, turn my head the other way, and then be frustrated with it, instead of saying, what is this? What is going on with you? Tell me about it. Tell me, what what can I do to help? So I regret that. But at the same time, I did learn it. I did learn about, about it. I wouldn't have learned had I not gone that path. I wouldn't have helped those other people had I not found out what a dire experience it is, what a deadly experience it is. I wouldn't have learned how to have that compassion and through this process of me being so regrettable, I, I got ill. I had to learn how to forgive myself. So although I regret not doing enough then, I equate not having regrets with understanding. I understand. And, and learning. and uh, yeah. yeah. Learning, like you said, compassion. And- yeah. I, I wouldn't have learned it. And I wouldn't have, I, I don't know what path my grandson would have gone on, but I ended up raising him through high school. He became an Eagle Scout, and he got a full scholarship to USC. That's amazing. He is and, a really good kid. Yeah, dad, and, yeah. And, um, and he says now that he knows that the counseling helped and 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 just the, the love. We just, this family, just we had to come together. So I guess I don't regret any of that. You know, and I and I'll say to my son and, and I've had him speak through mediums where he has said, you've become the parent I always knew you could be. Oh. That was a statement said to me. And I just, yeah, at the time it was said, it really teared me up because I thought, wow, sure took me a long time. <laughs> and, and now I guess I just always say, you know, OK, Melinda, where are you at right now? You know, is it time to move forward? Is it time to to sit and meditate, which I do now? Is it time to show your love for somebody? <laughs> you know. Well, that's beautiful. Sometimes I think, why does it have to be tragedy to strike for us to learn these things that you're talking about? But I think we don't, and you can disagree, is that we just, we're, we're the products of our environment, right? Of our parents. Yeah. yeah. And then we just kind of, we don't know any better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We, we don't That's know true. any better until we, we are come to an opportunity to learn it. Right. 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 right? I was and on, so, I was on automatic pilot and yeah. would have kept on. In fact, you know, you always talk about hearing your other podcasts about, you know, the, the three-year plan, the five-year plan, the 10, my husband was, that was his fanaticism, having all that plans. And, you know, we'll talk and he'll say, you know, we, we never saw it coming. I, I was worried about my son when I saw the, you know, I thought something tragic, but I guess I didn't guess that he would pass away. My husband never guessed that our younger son would, would go to drugs, that Dylan would be dropped on our doorstep. You know, so there's, um, yeah, the, the tragedy woke us up and shook us out of our, 
our automatic pilot, our fast lane of life. And once you work through those tragedies, you start for any light coming through that tunnel, any kind of time together and, and feeling, you feel it all. And so now you, you feel the love as well as the opportunity that tragedy could hit again. Right. Um, I, a podcast before this episode uh, with Reverend Penny Honey, she said, you know, I can make my list of goals that I want to do, but I'm going to leave them double space because I need to leave room for life to happen. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a beautiful way to say it is we can have these dreams and aspirations and we can have a plan, mm-hmm. but you can't plan for losing a child. You can't plan for your husband dropping dead one day and you can't plan for an illness right. one day you're fine the next you're not yeah and so while we want to do be responsible adults and i am not anywhere encouraging not to be responsible <laughs> is that sometimes we there's a you know there's more to life than like you say yeah. in the fast lane yeah and being in this pressure cooker and making of, all this money and making and... all this money and and of course, if that's what you want, that's great. But it, mm-hmm. when you're on your deathbed, what are you going to regret? Yeah, I've read stories and there's books out there of people going, God, I wish I didn't work so much. Mm-hmm. Or gosh, I would have you know, stopped and spent more time with this person. Or I wish I had... This is what this podcast is about, is not getting to that point and having all these regrets. Right, right. To, no, I, you know, to I, share I agree. your story. And I want to thank you so much for opening up. And, you know, there was a lot of good, you know, meaty things in your story. And I really appreciate you taking the time to spend it um, and, to, and to share it with however many people are going to listen. So... <laughs> Because it is sharing your story is vulnerable, mm-hmm. and to you don't know who's going to listen, but I hope that somebody whoever does listens to it, it makes them at least stop and think that wow, maybe yeah. I could do something different before something happens. Right, and then I go back to when you said the word vulnerable. I was thinking at the beginning of the conversation when you said acting, and I said, yeah, you're so vulnerable. I guess I'm okay with being vulnerable. I guess now it made me realize that, you know, and that's a hard thing for humans to do, it's to very feel difficult. that openness, very difficult, yes. to say, you know, I may say a line and I may mess it up instead of like bringing myself to tears like that sales manager who criticized something about me. It's it's more I can laugh or I can say, oh gosh, yeah, okay, I'll pick that up or let me change that. So maybe that's why the acting works and now the And the you're next... okay with not being perfect and having right. to redo it. Right. <laughs> being perfect. And like... so I see the fun in it and I'm and I figure okay, I'm when I do a, any kind of acting, I'm helping somebody tell a story. And then maybe I'm going to be fine with this next phase of telling the story. And I, I'm 66 and I thought, okay, Melinda, while you got the mind and the body, take care of your mind and your body, move forward, do what you can do. And when you have to stop and turn your attention to yourself or your family, you do it. And I'm okay with all of that. That's great. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are you, yeah. um, real quick, are you going to write a novel or are you going to write a screenplay for your stories? Or a little I don't bit really know. I don't really know. I want to tell the story of my grandmother going to Panama in 1917 being a missionary 
uh, I have a lot of letters from her that have really inspired me. And then at some point, I may do a version of my son's life. Before, I used to think I had to tell it exactly as it happened, but I only got my side of it. So at some point, I may write either a screenplay or a um, play about the struggle of these people when they become addicted. Because this has taken on, this has been going on for about 15 years now. And it doesn't seem to be slowing down. No, it seems to be getting a lot worse. And there's worse. a lot of yeah. parents losing their, their yeah. beloved child. And there's something about addiction that we don't quite understand. It's, it's addiction is very rough. Yeah. It affects the entire family. Yeah. So. And I think that um, people need to not... I, I, I know that I felt shame when it happened. And I don't think that... Uh, and, and I think there was a lot of parents who have felt shame. So I, I don't think that um, if I tell the story and others are telling the story, that we realize that, you know, we can rise out of that shame. Sure. And, and give the proper kind of support these people need. Perfect. Well, I can't wait to read your stories <laughs> and you get to start writing them. Okay. So. Well, thanks for the encouragement. You're, <laughs> you're always encouraging me about so, that. Well, I want to um, thank you for your time today, Melinda. I really do appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your story. Okay. Well, thanks for inviting me. You're and welcome. And having me be a part of your, I love all your other podcasts. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks. Well, thank you.